Oh, is everybody this morning? Awesome. Awesome, 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 awesome. May have to come down with me just a little bit. I tend to get loud nowadays. <laughs> well, we are continuing through our, our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, we have made it to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, if you want to turn there in your scriptures. Um, today's sermon is called Love Your Enemies. Let's open up in prayer. Father, we love you. Father, we can't say it enough because it's true. Father, we don't deserve your love. We don't know why you love us so much, but we are so eternally grateful that you do. And we are so grateful that you loved us even as we were your enemies. Before we were reconciled to you, before we were washed by the, the blood of your son, you still loved us as enemies against you. And Father, we, we can never, ever, ever thank you enough for that love. Father, I pray that as I, I, I give this message during this hour that I would give your word as, as faithfully and truthfully as possible. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to see your word clearly, to see you clearly in it, and to see ourselves and to know how to navigate this world. Father, we need you now more than ever, and we will continue to need you more and more as the day approaches. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you for your love. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen. So last week, just a little recap before we jump into the here, because these two um, sections, they're pericopes, these two sections are intimately tied together in the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, last week, if you, if, if you weren't here or didn't catch it online, I'd encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. Um, we talked, uh, we got into this idea of um, using violent force against others and when is that okay and when is it not okay um and so then again that same concept here is tied again when jesus was talking about don't resist an evil person but turn you know if they slap you on the right cheek turn left also and we talked about how that was talking about insults and how we should in order to accept insults and not retaliate against insults we should lay our pride aside and so that is what we must do as mature Christians in the kingdom. We must lay our pride aside. And that when people insult us or attack us, that we have to not let that pride well up and do those things that carnally that we instinctively want to do back, those things that we want to say back, that we can't do that. Um, but we also said that in doing so, we do not lay our protection of the innocent aside. And so even though we lay our pride aside against attacks against ourselves, we do not, therefore, forfeit all protection of innocent life when somebody wants to attack them. We're going to be diving into that same concept here in loving your enemies because it's one thing for me to get up here and tell you what Jesus said and for me to tell you to love your enemies, um, but then not to tell you how to love your enemies in this world. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Matthew five forty three through 48 says this. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus said, you have heard you should love your enemies and hate, I mean, love your, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. And I need to take a little second to, to, to explain this. So far as we've been looking through these sections where Jesus said, you have heard, um, do, not, do not kill, do not murder. But I tell you, he said, you have heard, do not commit adultery. But I tell you. And so what he goes on is he, he's quoting these Old Testament scriptures and then he's going to elaborate on them and explain how to live those out and how it's not enough to just not commit the offense in person, it's also down to the heart. We must not commit the offense at the heart level as well. But this one, this one strays a little bit from the ones we've seen in the past because at a moment's reading, what you read is you have heard, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And so your first instinct based on reading this Sermon on the Mount is the Old Testament says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But here's the thing. It only says to love your neighbor. I have searched. I have searched online to see if anybody else has found it. I've searched with logos. I've searched every combination of hate and enemy that I can come up with. Nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere have I found, nor have I found anyone else who can, online who can say, here's where I found it. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, hate your enemy. Nowhere. So that's an important distinction you need to make because I, you can find online where people say, why does the Bible say to hate your enemy? And then they quote Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, where Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But see, what Jesus is doing here is you've heard it said. Instead of saying Jesus could have easily said, it is written, or God said, or the Lord said. He could have, normally when quoting the Old Testament, normally Jesus and the apostles would say, it is written. But he didn't say that. He said, you have heard. You've heard it said. This is the teachings of the rabbis. Now, do the rabbis normally teach the scripture? Yes, that would be understandable that they would normally teach things found in the Old Testament. But here they're being taught, and the people in general are being taught, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus is saying that. No. No, God never said to hate your enemy. As, as, as brutal as the Old Testament seems sometimes, as much as we read in the Old Testament about the destruction of God's enemies and warfare and fighting and all these things that happen against God's enemies, never does God say to hate your enemies. And so we're going to be diving deep into that in this sermon. He said, I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, there's the key, so that you may be like God who treats both friend and foe with provision and care. Remember that? Let me jump back there. He said, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I'll tell you real quick, when I used to read the Bible and I would, th- it, I would read where it talked about 
sending rain on people. I used to think that was like a bad thing. Like you send sun on people, that was a good thing. You send rain and that was a bad thing until I started gardening. And then I realized that the people 2,000 years ago did not view rain as an inconvenience. They didn't view rain as a scary thing that's coming to happen if you're afraid of storms. They viewed rain as life. They viewed rain as provision and care and support. And without it was death and famine and destruction. And so when when Jesus is saying that God sends his son on the evil and the good and his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous, what he's saying is that God across the board cares for and provides for both his friends and his enemies. He does not, he, he treats them the same. He cares for and provides for everyone, whether they were his enemies or not. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be like God, then you need to do the same thing. You need to care for and provide for your enemies, not just your friends. If you want to be children of your Father in heaven, if you want to be like him. Now let me jump back because I I, I threw myself off. So here's what we read in Exodus. I wanted to throw this in here just so that you can see this clearly. You may not remember this from reading through Exodus. These are not typically the verses we remember. He said, if you come across your enemy's stray ox or donkey... Your enemies, stray ox or donkey, you must return it to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you, lying helpless under its load, and you want to refrain from helping it. I love how the Bible is just so brutally honest. (laughs) You know, like, not sugarcoating anything. If you see someone's donkey under a burden that it can't get up struggling, and someone who hates you, and you want to refrain and turn your head and look the other way and act like you didn't see it, you must help with it. Mm. And you say, Pastor, you didn't have to put that in there today. No, I do. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching us. The idea is that we must care for and do right to those who hate us and want to do wrong to us. We must do right by them. We can't just do right by those that we are like or we love or care about or agree with us. We must do right by everyone, even if they hate us and even if they're our enemy. And this is something taught throughout the Old Testament as well as the New. This is not Jesus coming in and saying, I know this is how it used to be, you know, war with your enemies and hate your enemies and destroy your enemies. It's, you know, that's God. But, you know, when it went. When I got here, I said, you know what, God, let's, let's rethink this. Let's retalk this. Maybe we shouldn't be so, so vengeful. Maybe we should be more loving. Okay, I'm going to teach people we're going to be more loving. You know, that, I mean, honestly, no one would ever say that out loud, but people live by that motto. People live as if the God of the Old Testament has nothing to do with the God of the New Testament. And that the Jesus of the New Testament is all peace and love and prosperity and, and, and pacifism. And the God of the Old Testament is, is, is angry and, 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 and hateful and vengeful. And that we don't know what the disconnect is, but as a Christian, we're just going to live by the Gospels and we're just going to live by the, the parts of the New Testament that we hear week in, week out from the pulpit that sound good. And we're just going to ignore the Old Testament. And that's one reason why many of us won't read our Bible because it gives us so much angst and, and, and pain and frustration when we do read our Bible because the God we have up here doesn't seem to match the God we read about here. And that's a problem. And that's a problem that I want to try to address here. But that's a problem. It's a problem. Okay, I'm jumping to the end of my sermon. Let's, 
let me, let me jump back. Let me get back on track. All right. So this is what we see even in the Old Testament. God says, look, even your enemies and even those who hate you, you need to do right by them. You need to help them. And, and if you don't want to help them, you need, you need to specially help them. You, you don't get off the hook. And God sees the heart. All right, so let's jump back. Matthew 5, 46, 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. What Jesus is saying here is if you only love those who love you, your love is no different than your enemy's love. The love you have in your heart ain't no different than the love that, that, that your enemy, who you think are just mean or hateful or evil, or they just don't have any love in their heart, well, they love the people like themselves. And you say, well, I know some people that are just evil. They don't have any love in their heart. Yeah, they have some love for people just like themselves. And if that's all you have, your love's no different. That's, that's harsh. I mean, that, that hits home, doesn't it? And that's what Jesus is teaching us. He said, if your love is like you love people like you, but you don't love your enemies, your love is no different than theirs, and neither of y'all's love is anything like God's love, period. Because that's, that's not what God's love is like. God loves those just that, that, are, that are righteous and holy and love him and humble, and God loves those who are arrogant and proud and unrighteous and, and evil. He loves everybody. And then he gives, we're going to jump to uh, Luke, but I just had to give you this example because the prime example of this was the expert in the law that questioned Jesus who only had love for those like himself. Let's read this real quick. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You answered correctly, Jesus told him. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road when he saw him. He passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of his robbers? And, the robber. and, and I know you know this, but this was the key to this passage. Jesus said, it's not who's a neighbor to you. That doesn't define someone as your neighbor. It's not someone who's good to you. It's not someone who's kind to you. It's not someone who will take care of you. Who is my neighbor? It has nothing to do with them. It has... Who will you be a neighbor to? Who is your neighbor? It's everyone that you should be a neighbor to. Who should you be a neighbor to? Well, in his example, he used an enemy. How do I know that they viewed a Samaritan as enemies? Well, if we go back to the passage I just read you in Matthew, he listed two enemies. 
He said, love your enemies. And then he said, if you love only those like yourself, you're no different than the tax collectors. You're no different than the uh, Gentiles. And the Samaritans were grouped in this, this same idea that they were not pure Jewish people and they had this same hatred. Think of the woman at the well. Jesus came to the woman at the well and he started talking with her and she immediately was like, whoa, why are you talking to me? I'm a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans, we don't associate. We don't talk. Jesus said, who, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Who is my neighbor? Everyone. You are to be a neighbor to everyone. And then he ends up telling them to be perfect. Let's see. I have to jump back. He said, be perfect, verse 48. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this gives some, some people struggle with this. I have to find my... I'm sorry, y'all. I just... Some people struggle with this. Because the idea is God has commanded us to do something we cannot do. Right? So the natural tendency... Because you can't be... Can you be perfect? Can any of us be perfect? We all know we can't be perfect. Otherwise, we wouldn't need Jesus. Okay? So God commanded us to be perfect as, as, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Our natural tendency is to downplay it and to say, okay, well, God knows we can't be perfect. That's why he sent his son for us to be perfect. Therefore, we should just do the best that we can. He didn't really mean it because he wouldn't command us to do something he knows we can't do. I disagree. I think when he said be perfect, he meant it. He meant it. Just like when you tell your kids, um, I, I can use pretty much any kid example since I don't have them, but, and I have to worry about if I'm talking about my kids. But if you tell your kids, you better not do that one more time. If you do that one more time, don't do it. I don't ever want, all right, let me give you an example to make it clear. If a kid is in the yard and y'all live near a road that's busy, you may very well tell them never get in that road. Is it possible that the kid will never get in the road? I mean, if you... I've heard of people who lived on their farms their entire lives and never stepped foot off of it. I just never met one myself. But the truth be told, at some point in their life, they will get on the road and the parent knows this. But that's not really, but the parent meant it. When they said, you better not touch that road, the parent meant what they said. No compromises. We're not going to lax. I'm not going to go lax on the rule. I meant it. Maybe that wasn't the best example. I probably should have came up with one before I came up here to preach. But, but you can probably come up with a better example than I just came up with. The point is, when God says to be holy for I am holy, he doesn't lower his bar. He doesn't lower his standard. He doesn't say, okay, I know you can't be holy, therefore this in, this in, this in, this in, this in, I don't care about. You can do those because I know you can't be perfect, but okay, I'll lower my bar. He doesn't do that. God never lowers his standard. 
God never lowers his bar because to lower his bar, he must, there's no way around it, he must then have sins above the bar that he therefore says is okay. There's no other way around it. He cannot lower his bar. So when he says be perfect, he means it. When he says be holy, he means it. The thing is he's loving and therefore when we can't be perfect, he's forgiving. But it does not mean it's ever okay. That's where we get in trouble. When we, not God, when we say to ourselves, well, nobody can be perfect, so it's okay if I do so and so. It's not. It's never okay. It's never okay. And we can't teach the younger generation it's okay. We can't teach anyone else, our friends, it's okay. Because what happens is the more lax we get and the more lax we get about sin and the more lax we get about sin, all you got to do is turn on the TV. I'm telling you, I quit watching cable. We don't have cable at my house. I quit watching TV because you can't even watch commercials. You can't even watch commercials without seeing lewd things on the commercials. I mean, I hate to bring it up, but you can't even watch a Hardee's commercial anymore. I know half of you remember that. And I'm thinking, what if we come to? That you can't turn a TV on without somebody trying to tempt you in, in, in sinful ways. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. You can't, there's no good shows anymore. You can't watch a TV show. You can't watch anything. So I just quit watching TV. I, I, watch, I follow a lot of people on uh, YouTube conservative people I, I, i'll follow them and see what they have to say because i subscribe to the channel they make a video i watch it people that i can watch because it's not a whole lot you can do that anymore but even trying to watch their shows on youtube you have again commercials and ads and they pop up and they're just as bad as anything else this is what we've come to when we keep lowering the bar lowering the bar lowering the bar saying it's okay that's you know not a big deal it's okay god will forgive you we can't do that So when God said, be perfect, as your heavenly father is perfect, that's our goal. That's what we strive for. That's what we got to strive for every day. And in this context, because everything has to stay in context, we're specifically talking about his love. Our love, we need to strive for perfect love like God has. We need to strive for love that we love our enemies regardless. That we love our friends and we love our enemies. That we love everyone and that we are willing to, to provide for and care for those that we don't see eye to eye with, that we believe stand starkly against us, and even those who hate us. We must do right by them. But how do, so how do we navigate that in life? Because it's one thing for me to stand here and say it. It's easy to relegate it to a feeling. You understand what I'm saying? Typically, we say, what is love? It's an emotion. It's a feeling. So that's where we keep it. But that's not how the Bible talks about love. The Bible talks about love in action. And the Bible says that if love doesn't come out in actions, then it's not real. That if you can say whatever you want with your mouth, but if, if, you, if it never comes out, if you never actually abide by what you say, then what you say is meaningless words. They're empty. You can say, I'm such and such and such and such, or whatever, I love so and so, but if you're always being vulgar to them and criticizing them and bashing them, you don't love them. Your actions supersede your words. As Christians, our words must match our actions. But that puts us in a tight spot. Because if you think about what we talked about last week, all of that comes back into play this week. 
It's the same concept. So how do we navigate this difficult scenarios we may find ourselves in that have to do with peace and violence? Because that is, in essence, a lot of what's going on here. This idea that Jesus said, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the, the other also. And how I talked about in context, that is an insult. And that if, was anyone ever in danger of losing their life or the lives of their children by being slapped on the cheek? No. In context, no. That was a public insult. And natural pride would say to insult back, period. But we're not talking about the context of someone actually losing their life. Then we went through last week about how Jesus ended up giving his life without fighting back and how the apostles ended up all giving their lives without fighting back. And we talked about the difference between an evil person with no authority given to them by God or the government, and we talked about government authorities given authority to them by God, and we navigated that last week. So we look again on the same idea. How do you love your enemies? And what I want to, what I, and I'll go ahead and give you the, I'll go ahead and give you the, the, the punchline at the end. This is it as we navigate through this. So be thinking about this as we navigate through these scriptures. To love your enemy does not mean to stop loving your enemy's victims. Plain and simple. I gave the example of um, of a church in Texas, Sutherland Springs. I gave the example of Sutherland Springs last week. Evil man comes in, no authority by the government at all, comes in to commit evil, wounds 20, kills 26. Now, pray that that never, ever, ever happens here. But let's imagine it's happening right now. Evil man comes in, has a gun, has intentions of killing everyone here. Am I to love him or you more? I don't think God calls us to, to love him more than the people he wants to commit evil against. I don't see that in the scripture. I don't see it in the Old Testament. I don't see it in the New Testament. I don't. Does it mean I have hatred for him in my heart? If I'm following God's law, I don't. Now, I won't know till the day happens. I can't stand here and say, oh, I won't hate the guy. I'm sure I probably will. I'm human. But God's heart says, even the enemies, all the enemies of the Old Testament, all of Israel's enemies, when you read the Scriptures and you read what happened to Israel's enemies throughout the Old Testament, you see judgment, you see violence, you see killings, you see all this stuff. The problem we then have when we're reading this is we have already, before we took the time to ever come to the Old Testament Scriptures, because none of us grew up reading the Old Testament Scriptures as a kid, and like, oh, this is my favorite book, Joshua. You know, like none of us ever said that, ever. We don't grow up reading the Old Testament. We grow up sitting in the pulpit, sitting in the pews, hearing about a Jesus of love a, and watching on TV and all these different things, a, Jesus, a pacifist Jesus, 
who is completely, completely, completely opposed to any type of violence whatsoever under any circumstance. That's what we have in our mind. We think this is the same God we have. We come to the Old Testament. We start reading where God commands violence, approves of violence in circumstances. And because we have internally said that all violence under all circumstances is inherently wrong because Jesus is against it, when we read that, what do we do? People lose their faith. People walk away from the scriptures, and we inherently think God is in the wrong. And that troubles us. And we think, how can this be? How can God be good? Because I know someone who does this is bad. And now I'm reading God's doing it, and now I'm having a problem. But I'm telling you, the Psalms, can I just say this real quick? I love the Psalms, but you got a 90% chance you flip and open to a Psalm and put your finger down on a Psalm, and it's talking about hurting somebody. I mean, it is. It's talking about bringing destruction to my enemies and, and delivering me from the violence and all this stuff. And it's just lots and lots and lots and lots of deliver me, save me from my enemies. And they don't talk about enemies as we've been taught to talk about them growing up in church. Jesus quoted the Psalms a lot. The apostles quoted the Psalms a lot. They didn't seem to have a problem with the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus didn't seem to have a problem with what God did in the Old Testament. And so all I'm trying to say is up front, maybe it's because we have created a false view of pacifism, attached it to Jesus, applied it to God, and now we have a problem. Maybe if we would try to dig deep and not just, not just nonchalantly, but like really dig deep and struggle and try to embrace what is God teaching, maybe we would have created a view that violence under circumstances is what God actually commands and wants, and violence under all other circumstances is absolutely what God does not want, and God actually makes distinctions in circumstances. And he actually says, in this circumstance, yes, in this circumstance, no, and either one is wrong. If you violate either one, Because if you commit violence against somebody, when I tell you I don't want you to commit violence, that is sin. That is wrong. But if you don't commit violence against somebody when I've told you to and you take a pacifist approach, that is wrong. And we've never in our lives taken the time to say, okay, well then how do we navigate this framework and when is it right and when is it wrong? And that's something that I can't do in this hour sermon. I can show you an example of what I'm trying to talk about, but this is not a framework I can just build for you and lay out in 10 minutes. But I will try my best to give you an example that God does make distinctions. Let's look at some. Proverbs 24, 10 to 12. He says, if you do nothing in a difficult time, your strength is limited. Rescue those being taken off to death and save those stumbling towards slaughter. God commands us as righteous people and his children who stand up for what's right. He commands us to rescue those being taken off to death and to save those stumbling towards slaughter and to actually stand up and act in difficult times. When it's difficult to stand up and act and to rescue those who are being taken advantage of and who are having evil committed against them. It goes on in the next verse. He says, if you say, but we didn't know about this, won't he who weighs hearts consider it? Won't he who protects your life know? Won't he repay a person according to his work? 
The prime example of this that I can think of in our society today, because you don't have to talk about, oh, what about Hitler and Nazi Germany when they were taking all the Jews and six, six million Jews were just brutally murdered by the Nazi Holocaust. We don't have to look at those examples. We can look at our country right now at abortion. Right now. Way more than six million murdered. Way more. And this is the actual stance that you will see the majority of Christians take in public. I didn't know. I didn't know there were really children. I just thought it was a clump of cells. I didn't know. I didn't know that it was really a life that we were taking. I didn't know. This is the stance most Christians take. And because that's the stance most Christians have taken for the past 30 years, look at where we've come to. Y'all know that's my number one, that is my number one hurt and burden and pain for our country today. By far, anything else, I'll tell you today, and, I, and this goes against everything I, I believe in, because I believe in free speech, I believe in all kinds of things. I will give up every freedom I have to see abortion end. That's scary, because what will happen is, as soon as you give up your freedoms, it's all back to normal. So in reality, in a fallen world, it'll never work. I get that. But if it could happen, it won't, it can't. But if it could happen, I'll suffer every day the rest of my life to see all these children not be killed anymore. I would do that. Problem is, it just can't happen that way. But we are commanded to stand up. We are commanded to act in a difficult time. We are commanded to save those who are headed to slaughter. We're commanded to do this. Loving your enemies does not mean to stop loving everyone else. When you willingly allow criminals to assault victims in the name of love, what you have done is you have perverted justice in a way that God does not. You have. If we skip down to verse 17 of this same proverb, we jump down to verse 17, this is what we see. God said, don't gloat when your enemy falls and don't let your heart rejoice when he stumbles or the Lord will see, be displeased, and turn his wrath away from him. In the same proverb where God said, stand up and act in a difficult time to save those who are being taken off to slaughter. Act, save them, rescue them. In the exact same, just a few verses down, he says, oh, but by the way, if you're successful and if they, are, if they fall, you better not gloat about it because I don't hate them. I can love them and stop them from committing evil at the same time. And that's his heart. Don't gloat. Don't rejoice. Because God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't. And if we're God's children and our love for and we have love for them, we won't either. Ezekiel thirty three eleven. Tell them as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? God takes zero pleasure in the death of his enemies. Zero. Because he loves them so much. And we're to take the same heart. But just because he loves them doesn't mean he won't judge them and stop them and stop them from committing evil against other people. Because he loves the victims as well. And that's where we 
things tend to get blurry for us. We'll say, if, if we do so-and-so, if we, if we act against so-and-so, then that's not love. Well, what about the people that they're victimizing? Well, I'm not going to think about them. I'm not gonna, let's not bring them into the conversation. You have to bring them into the conversation. You have to. Let's look at Leviticus 21 through 5. The Lord spoke to Moses. He said, say to the Israelites, any Israelite or alien residing in Israel who gives any of his children to Melech must be put to death. The people of the country are to stone him. I will turn against that man and cut off from his people, cut, cut him off from his people because he gave his offspring to Melech, defiling my sanctuary and profaning my holy name. This is child sacrifice in the Old Testament. God says, Anyone who performs child sacrifice is to be put to death, and I will turn against him and cut him off from the people. That is the judgment by God, that I will cut him off from his people. That was the judgment. But then he goes on to say in the next verse, But if the people of the country look the other way when that man gives any of his children to Melech and do not put him to death, then... I will turn against that man and his family and cut off from their people, both him and all who follow him in prostituting themselves with Melech. What does that mean? What it means is God's saying, if someone is sacrificing children and killing children, because Genesis 9, 6, he said, anyone who kills someone, they are to be killed by men. You are to put him to death. But if you take the stance of turning the other way and not not stopping him, not stopping him, he said, I will hold you the same guilty as I hold him. I will hold you guilty just as I hold him guilty. That's what he said. The punishment for him was that he was going to cut him off from his people. He said, but if you do the same thing, I'm going to cut you off from the people. Same punishment. In other words, we're just as guilty. If we see evil committed against innocent blood, and we turn our eyes and turn the other way and say, you know what, I love them, so I can't do anything to try to stop them, we're just as guilty as doing it ourselves. If you're okay with that, okay. I'm not okay with that. Because that's perverting justice. That's perverting justice. And it doesn't mean you don't love them. It means you love them and the people that they're murdering. It means you love them and the people they're killing. It it means you love everybody. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed for God made humans in his image. The only reason I'm saying this is because here's the thing we do. Sometimes we'll take a pacifist approach and we'll say under all circumstances, killing is wrong. If you do that, you're going to have an incredibly hard time with the scriptures because what you'll do is say God is wrong because God commands it sometimes. In rare circumstances, In the circumstance in which someone actually murders someone, that's the circumstance we see. But what you'll do is if you don't take that stance and you think it's wrong, when you read the scriptures, you'll say God is wrong. And it's not true. It cannot be wrong. God can never commit wrong. It can't. So if it can't be wrong here, then we have to admit that under certain circumstances, it's not wrong. We can't draw any other conclusion other than to say God is wrong or God has changed his mind neither of which are supported by the Scriptures. 
So the same God of the Old Testament that under certain circumstances commands even us to do these things, kill, can't be wrong in the Old Testament, and he has to be the same God of the New Testament. He does not change. So under certain circumstances, it's okay. So how do you navigate? Well, you have to search the scriptures for what's okay. Authority is given to the government to kill. We talked about that last week. Not vigilanteism. You don't get to go out and kill someone back because they killed your brother. You don't get to do that. The law has to do that. The court system has to do that. Why? Because God has given authority to them to do that. He has not given authority to us to do that. Okay? So we'll draw that distinction there. But the point is, God is not... I I mean, I don't know any other way to say it. Even Jesus is not a pacifist. When you read Revelation, you're going to see a picture of Jesus that is very, very warlike. He's going to wage war. He's, he's going to come riding on a white horse. He's going to, to kill his enemies. He's going to bring judgment one day. But we, in the meantime, have to love. So what do we do? Well, this is where it comes back to last week. We don't retaliate. We don't go back after. We don't fight vigilante style. We don't go out, oh, so-and-so down the street. We heard that uh, he killed so-and-so, so so let's get our mob and let's go get him and kill him. Not going to happen. But if somebody comes in your house or somebody comes in this church and they want to kill everybody or kill your kids or whatever, I don't see anything in here that says you should just let them murder your children in the name of love because you love them so much that you love your children less. I don't see that. I see standing up, protecting the innocent, and that's what we're going to jump to right here so we can wrap up. This idea that God distinguishes between innocent blood and non-innocent blood. He says over and over and over and over, you must purge from yourselves the guilt of shedding innocent blood. For you will be doing what is right in the Lord's sight. If you take the stance of some people that I've talked to, not many, but some, if you take the stance that they take, which is if you kill anybody at any circumstance, under any, even if they come in your house and are going to kill your children, if you kill them, that's murder. If you take that stance, these make no sense. That means there's no such thing as innocent blood. That's what this means. God says, no, there's innocent blood. If someone is innocent and they've done nothing wrong and someone murders them, that's called innocent blood. They did nothing wrong. They didn't attack. They didn't go after that person. They were innocent. God makes a distinction between innocent and guilty because he's a God of justice. And we make those same distinctions. My child who has done nothing wrong in the house is innocent. And you have no right to take his life. And I love him and I love you. But according to everything I see in the scripture, I will defend him life and limb against your life for taking, trying to take innocent blood. I do not see God condemning that in the scriptures. Again, let's look at one more. And this is the last one. This is what the Lord says. Administer justice and righteousness. Rescue the victim of robbery from his oppressor. Don't exploit or brutalize the resident alien, the fatherless, or the widow. Don't shed innocent blood in this place. That's God's heart. Rescue, protect, defend the innocent. Do not retaliate. Don't 
Don't commit revenge. Don't go after someone. Don't hate. But you can love someone and you can love a victim and a criminal at the same time and you can stand up to protect the victim. That's called righteousness. It's called justice. It's what we see God do in the Old Testament. It's what we see him do in the New Testament. And all of the things you see in the Old Testament where he brings judgment on people through killing, we still read nowhere in the Old Testament where it says that he wants you to hate them. And, and we read that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, period. But we also read that people are crying out day and night, day and night, day and night for God to rescue them. Day and night, day and night, day and night. God is hearing the cries of victims. Where is justice? Where is my justice? Protect me. Why are you allowing this to happen? And because of his love and because of his mercy, he is patient and long-suffering. But there is always a limit to at some point he will bring judgment and save the victims. And that is the story of eternity. One day he will come back and bring judgment and save all the victims on earth. He will judge all the wicked on earth, and every one of us deserves to be in that group of the wicked. Every one of us. We all deserve to be on that side in the judgment. But he's loving. And it says that God, Romans 5, 8, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us. He doesn't want us to die. Ezekiel 33, 11, why will you perish? Repent, repent and live. Turn from your wicked ways. He loves his enemies. He commands us to love our enemies. But we cannot go down this, this fallacy or this, this rabbit trail that leads us to the point where we will no longer protect the innocent. Where we will say, nope, Evil can have its way. Evil can have, do whatever it wants. It doesn't matter if, you know, I don't... I mean, you've got to keep in mind, let's give one more example, and then we're going to finish. The Sutherland Springs, let's come back to it. 26 dead, 20 wounded. But let's talk about the 26 dead. Does everybody who go to church, are they saved? No. Do people sit in church for 30 years, think they're saved and they're not saved? Yeah. So the one last, the one last argument I, wanna, I just want to bring up on this is when people say you should not kill the evil person because maybe they can be saved if you let them live and show them love. And they can be. There's no doubt. Killing people is not unforgivable. They can be saved. But to say at the same time Let's ignore the 26 people or the five people that were killed. Let's ignore their eternity to try to possibly save his. I'm never going to buy it. I'm not. I'm not just going to willingly throw away five people or ten people's eternities or two people's eternities or one person's possible eternity for the sake of one person's possible eternity who wants to kill and murder people. I'm not going to do it. I mean, as a pastor, I would like to say I could tell you who, who is saved and who is not in this church. But the truth be told, I cannot see your soul. I can tell you what Jesus said. I can tell you what the scripture says. But I cannot change your heart. Only the Holy Spirit can change your heart. And I cannot say, 
I'm going to let one evil person do whatever evil they want in order to try to possibly maybe save their soul and I'm just going to ignore the souls of all the people that they kill. I can't, I can't do that. Who's to say that the guy who comes in my house to kill me and my wife at night is not then going to go across the street and kill my neighbors in their house and then go down to the next town and kill somebody? In the, I mean, I can't just throw away everybody's souls just because possibly saving one person. And I, I, I can't do that. So I love you. I hope and pray that you never find yourself in these situations because keep in mind what I have talked about today is literally a situation that I pray none of you find yourself in ever. We're not talking about insults. We talked about that last week. We're not talking about somebody who just hates you and wants to talk trash about you online. We're not talking about that. Literally, I just tried to help you understand the idea that if you ever find yourself in a life and death situation where other people's lives are at stake or yours, I just tried to help you navigate that one situation to know what should we do, what should we not do. And I will always take the stance of to stand up and rescue the victim from the evildoer if they do not have authority from the government. I also talked about last week, if the government were to come to my house, even if it's one officer comes to my house, I will not stand against the government regardless. And, and I talked about that last week. So I love you. I hope, um, I hope I made that clear. And I hope you won't find yourself in the same situations that I found myself in in college, which was I had built this one image of a type of love that God had and things that he'd be willing to do and things he wouldn't be willing to do in my mind growing up. And then I get to college and I try to read the scriptures for myself. And then I completely fell apart in my faith and didn't know if I believed in God or not anymore because the God of love that I had built in my mind was a different type of love. It was a pacifist type of love that I could not reconcile with what I read in the scriptures. And it totally broke down my faith. And I had no idea if I believed in God or not. It ruined my faith at the moment. But eventually it built it up much stronger than it ever was before. I was able to come through it. But we know that is not the story for many, many people in this country. And we do them a disservice if we paint a picture of Jesus or a picture of God in the Scriptures that they will not encounter when reading the Scriptures. We do them a great disservice. And in order to do that well... We must take the effort and time to really navigate and study through these scriptures and try to figure out what is this love that God has. This is a love that is forgiving. This is a love that will, will do right by our enemies, will care for our enemies, will feed our enemies, will give drink to our enemies, will help our enemies, but yet will not let our enemies just murder and kill others just because, because we, somehow that love is supposed to be greater than the love of protecting the innocent. I, and I just don't see that. Love you. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, without your love, we are hopeless in this world. Father, we thank you for your love. Father, we thank you for, for giving us your word. And not just giving a little bit of your word, but giving us so, so, so much of your word. That there is so much, it is completely sufficient to navigate this life. And so, Father, I pray that we will study it diligently and faithfully and that we will wrestle with these things that give us trouble that we will not just ignore them or 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 brush them off and just pretend like they're not there but everything that that gives us trouble that we would struggle with it and wrestle with it and try to figure out what it is that we see wrong because we know that you are never wrong 
and help us to understand how you are always right in all these circumstances and situations. Father, I pray that you help us navigate our lives in a way that we will actually love and care for and provide for our enemies and that we would never gloat in our heart, that we would never rejoice in our heart at the, the, the falling of our enemies, at the stumbling of our enemies or the destruction of our enemies. Father, that we would love them with a love that causes us to want them to repent and be saved, but that we would love everyone, not just our enemies, but that we would love our enemies and our neighbors and our brothers and our family. Father, that we would love everyone the same. Father, help us to navigate this world because it is fallen and it is full of evil and life choices are not easy. But with you, with us, and your word firmly planted in our hearts, it makes it, it, makes it easier for us to be able to navigate these tricky situations. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' holy and precious and eternal name we pray. Amen.